Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums Podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is secluded with strangers horror, and we are joined by guest Josh Rubin. As a warning, this is an incredibly spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Scare Me, Werewolves Within, or A Wounded Fawn, you should definitely turn back now and go watch them. I think all of them are on Shudder. Uh, but come back after that and we'll get spooky. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. So here we go. Josh Rubin, how the hell are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. How the hell are you? I'm doing so good. This is a huge treat for me. I've been trying to expand my horizons a little bit to get more. Uh, I've been interviewing a ton of authors on the show. So to get an actor and a director and a writer all on in in one amazing package, like this is cool. Oh, it's it's a, pl- a pleasure to talk to you. I do have one correction to your intro, though, which uh, oh, no. viewers might be happy to know. It's all good. Werewolves Within isn't on Shutter, but you can find it, I think, streaming at least right now on Showtime and VOD for sure. But definitely Wounded Fawn and Blood Relatives and Scare Me. I've got three, three, uh, three films on Shutter. Which, unless you didn't say Werewolves, then I'm just like I'm totally blacking out, blackout, wasted, <laughs> drunk. <laughs> no, no, no. I said werewolves. That was a good correction. Working with Shutter, like, do you work with Shutter in any sort of a way, shape, or fashion, or is that just the happy landing place that a bunch of your work keeps coming to? It's been the happy landing place. Like, just kind of going in order. Scare me was an acquisition. That was one of the places there where, especially at the top of the pandemic, um, you know, they expressed interest in the movie, and they were um, they were fans and uh, and had acquired us really going into Sundance. Um, so, uh, with the movie climate being so, such a mystery with the COVID of it all, we jumped into their offer and, and, um, we're happy to be acquired. Um, so in that sense, it was just an acquisition. Um, since then, you know, they fully financed or they got into fully financing films. So they fully financed blood relatives. Um, and I believe they fully financed or at least co-financed, uh, wounded fawn. So um, they are, uh, I've known them as, you know, an, an acquirer, as acquisitions, and also as sort of like executive producers in terms of the financing of it all for the other films I've done. Uh, but yeah, so, the, I, you know, as a producer, it's been cool to work with them in that regard. They're really just sort of a, um, you know, a financier and a creative arm. And then, of course, once the film is done, you're working them with them pretty intensively on the marketing on the poster on the trailer they've got really rad you know kind of in-house vendors as well as freelance folks who um uh who they work with and and um and put out incredible work including i mean most recently boogeyman media put out this insane wounded fawn poster that's very sort of hellraiser-esque so um you know just kind of working with them and noting stuff up as we as we go is on the producerial side that's that's more or less been the relationship for me cool i know just from a fan perspective like Shudder always does amazing stuff, supporting the horror community, like having them in our corner is awesome because they're this great alternative to like the the big money of Amazon and like all of those other soulless machines. So uh, it's yeah. good to hear the other side of it too a little bit. I'm jumping the gun here a little bit. I haven't given you a chance to like introduce yourself at all. So let me let me build into this by ripping a quote or paraphrasing a quote out of Scare Me. When you and I, Akash, are going back and forth on the porch there and scare me, uh, your character's kind of angling for what's the big secret for striking it big as as a writer or an actor or anything else. And I, Akash's whole response is like, do the fucking work. Do the work, do the work, do the work. So coming to you, what's your work? (laughs) What, What work have you done to get to this point? I mean, it's been a lot of perseverance and output, 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 um, you know, beginning really with, you know, a curiosity about just kind of making movies from the get go, you know, like getting together with buddies on the weekend to kind of just make stuff, nothing that ever was submitted, but just like kind of fooling around, we do with video cameras in your formative years. But 
where it really got serious is when I moved to the city and had my camcorder um, as a kind of graduation, high school graduation present for my parents. And I started making silly videos with my buddy, Sam Rice, who now owns College Humor Dropout. Um, and, uh, you know, we started just kind of just playing around, but it became work. It became, you know, an effort to explore what short form video was. Um, and that turned into creating sketches, creating a sketch group that, you know, turned into essentially the, um, what was then known and then became College Humor Originals. So seven years of doing sketches for the internet, of doing comedy videos, not, not dissimilarly from Zach Kreger, um, whose background is Whitest Kids You Know, and who then went on to direct Barbarian. I mean, we kind of came up in sort of similar circles, you know, exploring and figuring out just all the technical shit uh, on the filmmaking side. That was kind of how I came to learn how to be, you know, the filmmaker that I am today with so much experimentation. Um, and, you know, learning how to just take a swing and start writing, even if it was terrible, you know, once you write, you're a writer and then, you know, reading the proper books and, uh, uh, just kind of, you know, um, doing, doing your prep. And I, I've done such a spectrum of it. I'm so equal parts of Fred as I am a fanny. I'm so wonderful <laughs> to work in, but it's also to be like lazy and, you know, kind of embittered. Uh, and, and I think that's the exciting thing about you know, that, that, that being my first film is like, it was so personal as, as most first films are. And, uh, there was no writer's block when you're writing something, you know, you, you truly know, which is everything of that experience of that life. Yeah. And I want to get to scare me in a second, but there's another thing you kind of hit on there that I want to dig a little more into the, this comedy background that you had and that we're seeing a lot of other horror directors and horror minds starting in comedy and then gravitating over to horror. Like we've got yeah. Daniel Bride with the Halloween movies. We've got Jordan Peele, obviously. Uh, we've got you, we've got Barbarian. We've got like, we've got this whole like collection of people doing the same kind of a move. What's the connection there from your perspective? Like what helps comedy and horror play with each other so well? I love this question. And I feel like it, it's been answered in probably more articulate ways than I can kind of grapple and formulate. But I think that there's something about a comedian sensibility that pushes and prods and experiments and tests the limit of. Um, and I think, in testing the limit of what you can take, how much you can uh, skewer social commentary wise, and also how much you can push on the scare of it all. I mean, you just look at what Zach Kreger did with, you know, with Barbarian, how far he pushed the visuals, both the visual humor and the kind of um, the visual terror and such a brilliant combination of it. Um, a comedian sensibility, I think only, um, it, it, it emphasizes and pushes it into a bit more kind of wilder, uh, uh, I'd say astute observationalist territory, just as any great, even stand-up comedian would do or sketch comedian. You, you skewer someone uh, from a social commentary kind of aside, but then, you know, the, the horror is just the icing on the cake. Any great comedian is going to, you know, push and test the limits of what people can kind of take and deal with and, you know, um, uh, have the magnifying glass kind of held up to. And so I think that's what makes comedians or at least people with comedy backgrounds such great um, horror directors is that we, we are ones to take swings and test the limits and have just that bit more, I think, of observationist um, kind of sensibility. Uh, even probably, you know, Krasinski, just like, and as an actor as well, like what he's done with Quiet Place, like there's just a bit more humanity, just a bit more character there and a bit more, um, I, I, I don't know, I think of maybe a bit more even emotionality than some of the more technically minded, say, genre filmmakers. For all the people that I've talked to about this question and all the answers that I've gotten, for whatever reason, Krasinski never popped into my mind, even though the hilarious and quiet place is obviously like big, like big money horror. Like, how does he? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that wild? I mean, I think it's too. It's just that's a dude who, you know, probably just started as an actor. I'm sure he did, you know, whether it was Groundlings or Second City or whatever it was, have an improv background you're working with so many different directors in television and then to go into the Jack Ryan sort of territory to, you know, he was probably eager, similar to Jason Bateman who did Ozark, which is not horror, but it's definitely, you know, genre is definitely kind of pushing it. I mean, the outsider was certainly, and he's so good at it. 
yeah. in directing horror, if you kind of want to rope Jason Bateman into it. Um, I don't know. I think there's uh, something interesting too. It's probably also just like all of us comedians are quite dark or have dark sensibilities. We look into the dark corners to kind of bring it out, make light of it, uh, call it out, what have you. And so I think there's also something about us folk uh, having a willingness and maybe a, a courageousness about exploring the dark corners of humanity because we're also inherently dark, probably. You know, we're all drawing from dark places to do our shit. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So then, then let's take all of those thoughts and let's jump into Scare Me. Because like you said, this plays as this like deeply personal movie. How did you pitch this thing initially because every time i try to like talk my friends into watching it with me the basic summary that i come up with is it's a bunch of people telling scary stories to each other but it's so much more than that and you just have to trust me and come watch it <laughs> how <laughs> how do you get high cash bought into this what was the elevator pitch here well um it was the height of me too uh, the Me Too movement when I wrote the script. Um, I was so kind of angry about the women in my circle who were kind of coming forward and also like, you know, were friends with guys who weren't quite down to signal boost the stories that they were um, uh, exhibiting and sharing about when they had had an, a toxic experience with a man. And while it isn't a Me Too movie, I thought it was really fascinating to explore gender dynamics, especially the very specific kind of icky issue of like toxic male emasculation in the shadow of a woman's genius, in the shadow of a woman's greatness, and especially as men who are grown, who are bred to be the breadwinner. You're supposed to bring home the bacon for the woman and be the provider, and they're not supposed to make more money than you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to, say, to take and subvert that kind of um, social standard, or I guess double standard, and um, and skewer it and flip it and prod it and put a toxic male kind of at the center of it, this kind of tete-a-tete, was super exciting to me. So um, to go to the kind of logline of the pitch of it all, I said, look, this is, a, this is a, a horror anthology that never leaves the campfire. And so I'd say it's a sound designer's movie. It's a composer's movie. But what it really is is a showcase for the actors to literally act out the creatures, to literally act out uh, the monsters, slashers, and, and things of the, of the night. But what it's really about is this, competitive gendered dynamic between these two essentially flawed people and uh the so it was the social relevance it was the cost the non-prohibitive cost kind of element that really excited the producers you know i knew that we could just basically do this in a house basically do this in you know all of two weeks shoot time and I didn't really need to pitch it to Shutter because Shutter was acquired it. We shot it independently. We, you know, I cashed out some of my four hundred one k from College Humor and found some financing with the help of um, my managers and our producers and Ironing Point, cobbling together financing to make it happen for well south of a million dollars. Um, and Io was just down to do it because we've been buds through her husband Josh for some time, uh, and um, she lives nearby you know, upstate where we shot. She was down to make a movie in her hood. She had just wrapped several seasons of her TV show. And she's like, cool, now I just want to do challenging shit. And so I really didn't need to, to push and prod. Um, she was she was down very quickly, which was so, so killer. I saw you, you directed a couple episodes of You're the Worst or wrote for a couple episodes of You're the Worst. I, I wish I did either. I actually, I somehow, I don't know how it happened. It might've just been a direct offer, probably in part thanks to Aya. Um, and this was before we did the movie together, which is kind of wild, but I think it was just a, a flat out offer from FX. Not long after I'd appeared in a, I don't even know, it wasn't a mini series. It was kind of like a, um, a sort of an anthology of sorts on FX called Cake. And there was this series called Oh, Jerome, No, that I popped up in. I think they were like, oh, he was so fun. Well, you know, maybe he should pop up and you're the worst. So anyway, um, I just appeared in the show. I did, I think it was two episodes. Um, and I played a character that had an arc that went over the two episodes. It was just like super fun to work directly with Aya and some other actors. And, um, 
including Caitlin McGee, who's really incredible, and a few other just like rad character actors and have a scene with Aya. Um, was just so fun. Also like kind of nerve wracking because, you know, mostly I'm home in my pajamas writing and then to suddenly be like on set with all these resources and let's just talk it out and let's just play and this, that, and the other thing. It was just like, it was just such a thrill. And then to, you know, just be able to like hop in my car and go home, you know, 10 minutes away. It was just like, it's it just the thing dreams are made of. And I was able to do it for years. So anyway, I just popped up there for a couple episodes and was stoked. Okay. Okay. I was wondering what the what the dynamic was there between that show and then Scare Me and like how the timelines wove together. So okay, that makes sense. Oddly a coincidence, yeah, but it was perfect because it kind of I think buttered Aya up to be like, oh yeah, Josh. So let's jump from here into Werewolves Within because Scare Me was followed pretty quickly by Werewolves Within, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and you you went from writer, director, and actor into just director for that movie correct that's correct yeah that's correct werewolves and then was an open directing assignment yeah what is it like trying to change those hats so quickly in between shoots is there a part of you that always wants to while you're directing jump in as an actor and be like ah oh, this is the way we should do this or uh, when you're just acting like you were in wounded fawn is there are there times that you have to hold yourself back from jumping behind the camera and being like i think we should play <laughs> <it> like this <laughs> I try to be the kind of dream actor that I want to work with, which is one to not like be a know-it-all or be an over-suggester uh, or, um, you know, a mansplaining, a maniac. Um, I love just being an actor because I can observe a director in a director's process and archive the skills to then leapfrog to my next project um and adopt even like turns of phrase and you know take a cue from someone's temperament or you know what have you when it's tough is when you know i could see a a solution a very easy solution but i don't want to chime in because i again i don't want to be that kind of annoying actor but often i'll work with directors who are extremely open the really good ones are just open to collaboration and open to suggestions here's what i'm thinking and if anybody else has a better idea you know, chime in. You just have to be very decisive and very kind of firm and, you know, not, not kind of um, slow down the, the process, uh, if at all you can. With werewolves jumping from scare me, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, all of those skills are firing rapidly. A great director is also a, um, doesn't have to be a great writer, but someone who understands great writing, writing in brevity, you know, character. Um, I think actors make really good directors because, you know, we tend to not over-explain for our performers. We tend to approach in a more kind of holistic manner rather than, you know, coming in all technical. And as a producer, you know, again, it all ropes into having directorial skill. You're a problem solver, you know, um, as a producer, you know how to problem solve, you know how to deal with people, you know how to kind of make things happen. And I feel like there's a kind of um, diplomatic immunity, for lack of a better term, that, you know, I certainly kind of had just having produced and done so many small scale things that you kind of just get it. Once you get to a set, regardless how many toys you have or how big the scale is, you still got to get this action or make this thing happen inside this frame, inside this little box. And so good producers, good writers, or just good problem solvers to kind of um, to kind of make it all happen. So as far as the filmmaking side of it all, the filmmaking hat of it all is concerned, it, it, it's, it's only helpful to kind of, you know, do and come from multiple worlds. As an actor, the only time I get anxious is, again, when things kind of get slowed down, um, you know, and I want eagerly to kind of chime in. And, um, uh, but it's, it's great to kind of just sit back and be an observer. So another thing with Werewolves Within is you are jumping from Scare Me, which had, I think, at most in any scene, three characters, to this full ensemble cast with tons of characters, all of them with a lot of personality built into them. Um, yeah. What what is the trick for any like writers out there or anybody any creatives that are trying to figure out like I've got too many characters I can't make them all feel unique I can't make them like kind of breathe on their own uh, from your perspective what's the trick to getting all of the characters feeling like real fleshed out people because that's that's one of the amazing things with Werewolves Within is the entire cast gets moments to shine and it was glorious. <laughs> 
Thank you. I mean, they really did. I can't take credit for that beyond Mishna Wolf's brilliant writing. You know, she, the way she, she talks about that process and writing those characters was, was almost like um, looking at Clue as an example, not even the film, but, but um, you know, the board game even. Each character is kind of a color. Each, each character imbues a, a certain or exudes a certain energy. And so the writing's got to be there, and the writing certainly was there. Her writing was just so incredible, and the characters leapt off the page. Um, but the real trick for me is casting. You know, you got to cast actors that are going to come to the table and just have ideas and take swings, but also be sort of, you know, open to ideas and suggestions to kind of guide them. And, you know, I think any my job uh, – really on an ideal scale when you bring in all these actors and every single one of them on werewolves is brilliant and has so much experience. My job is just to kind of tell them to scale it back or, or put their foot on the gas, like turn it up or pull it back. And then that, that job continues in the edit, turn it up or pull it back, you know, a little too much here. Let's make sure, you know, let's go for a more subtle take here, this, that, and the other thing. It's too wicked here, too wild here, you know, pushing a little too hard here. Let's scale it back or let's, turn it up okay so do you have any stories you can tell about like a time that one of the actor or a scene where one of the actors like you wanted them to ramp it up yeah i i think i think i do actually so michael chernis who um is an actor i've been dreaming of working with ever since i saw him in an off-broadway play called the aliens in new york um uh i just think he's so genius. And he was one of my first, he was, he was on my, um, my sort of dream board, my dream collage, dream casting collage, uh, along with several others when I was sort of pitching on the gig. Um, and you know, he plays typically quite docile, sweet dudes and doesn't often play wicked or woozy or, um, uh, he, he doesn't, doesn't tend to go broad because he's a naturalist and that's what makes Michael so brilliant. And so when his, uh, his character Pete had his hand bitten off by the werewolf in the middle of the night, and they're all, you know, suddenly downstairs, you know, he's sitting fireside nursing his injury. I had him ramp up. I said, I want you, I know this is tough, but I want you to just cackle like the Joker. You have to stop this energy in the room, like a record scratch by uh uh being quite manic and so that was a moment where i just definitely you know had him had him kind of turn it up um on the flip side you know michaela watkins comes from a sketch background she is so inherently funny she plays trish in the movie and she came in taking really big swings they're all so brilliant same thing with Harvey Guillen. So both of them, it's like, great, we got the big version. Now let's see what the smaller version is. Or we got the improv. Let's see what it is on script, you know, what have you. And then you just kind of, you know, you just kind of work with um, with each actor um, and, uh, and and with their skill set brought to the table and ends up being a you know pretty killer stew. Cool. Yeah, as you're going through this, I'm thinking of all the scene. Uh, like I'm thinking of the scene by the fireplace with the cackle and like all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So it, the whole slant of this podcast is looking at how horror gets approached by different mediums of entertainment. So books versus movies versus video games. So I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mm-hmm. bring up a video game question here. Um, I know you said you didn't have a lot to do with the writing of this, but from a director's standpoint, was there any complication trying to adapt something that was already a video game? Was there any sense of, I need to like, I need to pay homage to the game aspect of this, or I need to, I need to make sure I'm like being true to the game aspect of this. Or did you kind of just get a 100% go do your thing? That's That's such an awesome question. Um, I got a uh, surprisingly a 100% go do your thing. Once I'd earned the trust of Ubisoft, which was pretty quick. Um, and there was still, there was still trust to earn after I got the gig, you know, cause I was thinking, you know, here, here's this dude who did this tiny movie and now, you know, he's doing this, this six and a half million dollar, you know, uh, ensemble movie. What's he going to do? Um, if anything, I was one as a film fan and a fan of Easter eggs, I was one to push homage to the game so that for the, for the handful of folks 
who loved the game or played the game, they got to see or, or, or see homage, or at least I could address, yes, I did see you guys. I did acknowledge you guys. You know, one of the, one of the things that I insisted on was that the, <clears throat> the Beaver field in ledger um, is the book from the game. There's a gigantic book that plays a, an important part of, you know, the, the, the player's process um in the in the vr game and that was janine's ledger um and then it was really cool when we wrapped my gift from the uh from the crew was the book signed by all the crew cast and crew members it was awesome it's this cherished thing i have in my uh in my quote-unquote office which is really just a shelf because i live in a tiny little place um but uh you know, and then there was some artwork too. The artwork in the game is so kind of like unsettling and gothic, and um, uh, uh, I was able to give that to the production designer and just kind of say, "Hey, let's let's bring in homage to these art pieces. Um, let's bring in um, some of the not exactly the weaponry, but um, uh, you know, pay pay homage to um, the color palette." Um, pay homage to, you know, at the, the center of the game, the centerpiece of the game is this large tree stump. So we got this like tree stump table that, you know, is the table in the center of the room um, that, uh, that exists there as well. So just like stuff like that, but it was really cool because it's an obscure game and Ubisoft knew it and they were with it and cool. And they were just like, yeah, you don't, you don't need to just like make a good movie. <laughs> that was my mandate. You know? That's so interesting to hear because we get so many video game adaptations that don't feel like they're bolstered up by the source material. It feels like they're kind of like held back by it and hindered by it. So hearing that Ubisoft kind of had that approach with you, like maybe that sheds a little light on like why this works so well. I think that's exactly why it worked well is because they gave us freedom. And I think there was... um I wasn't a, an executive at, at uh, Universal, but there was an example of, of how, I think it, it might have even been Brad Fuller who worked on Quiet Place and he was talking about the MonsterVerse. I could be getting um, the, the Brad Fuller of it all wrong. But, um, you know, rather than telling James Wan what parameters you have to come in to pitch on the mummy, if we're going to make a dark universe, uh, the key is to tell James Wan, do whatever you want to bring the mummy to life, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, it's got to hit this and it's got to look like this. And it's got, you know, here, here's your box. It's okay to have parameters, but when you, you know, a great filmmaker is, has to have the space to be able to do their thing. Um, and, uh, and that was, I think why, you know, that sort of that franchise or that effort failed just because there were too many parameters. But these guys, especially with the IP, they said, look, this isn't like Assassin's Creed. You know, if this is a lot more obscure, like go crazy, you know, and they that happened from the beginning. That happened very early on. That process began with Nisha and a wolf, like kicking the writing's ass. Nice. Yeah. And that the script is so fast paced and so quick and there's a joke a second and this has become my go-to like introduce people to horror movie because it has the horror elements built in, but it's also just so fun from the word go. Um, our, our neighbors come over and try to watch horror movies with us sometimes. So they're not like <laughs> super horror people. Uh, but I've got, I've got my neighbor Trey running around now, just yelling balls, 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 balls constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh okay let's get to the movie of the hour now a wounded fawn so yes sir something that is kind of a through line for all three of these movies is you have a very josh rubin-ness about them like i i feel like i could watch one of your movies moving forward and kind of guess that it was you even if you weren't in it because a lot of them and that is not intended to be a knock or anything like that. Not like, you're <laughs> no. predictable. but like you have this great way of making characters so charming and so disarming in the beginning of the movie. And then there is some dark turn near the end. And whether that's you as an actor or you as a director, like it's a very effective move that you pull off so consistently. And it happens again here in a wounded fawn. First 10 minutes of a wounded fawn, I'm watching your character. I'm like, this guy's cool. This guy, well, I mean, maybe don't in invite him into your house. Maybe you shouldn't. This isn't, oh God, here we go. Uh, we're, we're, we're at that point, 10 minutes in the movie instead of an hour into the movie. <laughs> scare me. But I guess 
the question I'm trying to build to here is mm-hmm. what, when you're looking at a script or when you're considering a, considering a project, what is the green light for you um, where you know you want to get involved in something, you want to take on that character, you want to take on that world, and you want to try to tackle it yourself? That's a great question. I mean, you know, for Wounded Fawn, it was just like the opportunity to play a villain, you know, to do something kind of fun. I mean, I'm pretty easy as an actor. You know, it's like if it's comedic and it's something I know I can deliver on, if it's something scary on the rare occasion, someone asked me to do something like that, which really was only a wounded fawn and, and scare me. Um, I want to, you know, show up and, and do something um, because I don't want people to kind of pin me down, even though I do a lot of comedy. I love, I love that Travis approached me with a wounded fawn because it's so different than the comedy stuff that I do. And I've done it's, it's um, but it compliments scare me and it feels I don't know about a double feature with werewolves, but it it feels different enough from werewolves that it, it kind of be like, wait a minute, this dude like directed a funny kind of spooky werewolf movie and this like gender competition Sundance flick, and also played a serial killer in this like phantasmagoric uh, indie for Shutter. Like, you can't pin this dude down, or what's he going to do next? And I, I I just want to keep doing stuff, ideally in the genre that. Um, that is rewatchable, that is as rewatchable as the stuff and fresh as the stuff that, you know, like um, the great uh, genre films of the 80s were for me without being like buoyant or cartoonish, but just, you know, I feel like there was an originality and a kind of um, freshness and fun to those types of films. Um, And that's not to say I want to do escapist films um, kind of again and again, but I am a kid who, you know, grew up on Spielberg, like as, you know, Lee Winnell and Ryan Johnson and everyone else did and pulled from. Um, so I think so long as it's, I don't know, is it's just kind of like not too derivative and not just kind of super on the nose, uh, basic, um, uh, been done before. I want to, I want to fuck around. I want to, you know, I want to do stuff that takes wings. Um, but, you know, I'm also pushing 40, so I have to I have to think about, like, you know, what the what the financial commitment is if I'm also committing time. And, um, uh, you know, if, if I if money were no like object, I would do everyone short film. I would do all the indies. I would do, go to all the table reads. I would do it all. But, you know, I have to be selective, especially just in the era of trying to continue making movies as well. But, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm not terribly picky, but I. I love to play. I love to produce for other, other people, other filmmakers. And, um, you know, I see, a, I see a future in that, you know, as well, just kind of sit in the elevator back down if I can. Yeah. Love it. Um, so you, you kind of prefaced a wounded fawn here. Uh, for me, this was just this acid trip of terror. Uh, and I loved every second. <laughs> of it. I've got a lot of specific questions I want to dive into here, but first just, for our audience, um, if anybody got to this point in the interview and has not watched a wounded fawn yet, what is the quick pitch of a wounded fawn? Why should they drop everything and go watch this and then come back to the podcast, please? Maybe. <laughs> oh man, I mean, uh, it's not your typical guy takes girl to a cabin and uh, turns out to be a killer. It's Patrick Bateman in the Evil Dead cabin, but the Deadites are uh, the goddesses of vengeance. Oh my God, that's such a good way to describe it. <laughs> it truly is. Like Patrick Bateman in the Evil Dead cabin. And that's when I read it, and I was like, holy shit, and you're going to shoot it like Raimi? Like this is so clearly, like all the visuals are such a part of the, um, such a part of the description of the... Uh, of the of the script proper like i knew that it was going to be evocative and that was part of travis's pitch to me it was going to be evocative those kind of early films and you know the 70s kind of era i was like yes this is wholly visionary um and uh you know have to be have to be a part of it we our sensibilities have changed we're like we're kind of we need to be um truly entertained uh uh with something that is wholly fresh i think that's like why nope and bodies, 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 and barbarian have done so incredibly well. You know, Smile did really well too because I think that's uh, you know on the flip side, that's a very, very universal film. Uh, and what is more kind of relatable than the Smile? But what's far more exciting to me is the fact that 
these other films with these fresh ideas have traveled so, so far. And I think that's why Wounded Fawn is making a splash. It's like, you know, a smaller film as an indie out of Shudder. It's like, shit, this is, this is fresh. I haven't seen this or thought of this kind of idea or concept before. Yeah, all the way down to the mythology of it. So we, we've got this serial killer that, that's going to kill girl in Cabin in the Woods. Like, that, like you were saying, that, that by itself kind of sounds like this very like typical setup. But the thing that drives this thing into overdrive is that Greek mythology slant to it. Um, yes. The fact that the serial killer is being hunted down by the these Eries uh, or Iries. Oh, the, uh, the Aranaeus, yeah. Aranaeus, exactly. there it is. Exactly. Um, it It's all together familiar enough for us to wrap our heads around, but also foreign mm-hmm. enough that we don't know where this is going. Like the, they're showing these statues in the beginning and one of them looks like Medusa. So, okay, I've got a little bit of context for this maybe. Yeah. What made them the focal point of this story instead of like, oh, Zeus is angry now? That's a really good question. I mean, I think the theories have been part of, I'm, I'm no um, academic by any means. I, I'm, uh, I'm very public about my 950 SAT score. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think Nathan Faudry, the, the original writer of the script, um, the co-writer with Travis, it was his kind of concept to rope the Furies in and make the Furies the Cenobites, to make the Furies the the Deadites, to make the Furies, you know, the the, the ultimate kind of a badass, um, phantasmagoric, uh, I guess you could say villains or really heroes of the film. Um, so I'm not sure. I think that's a that's a question for Dan, but it's such an original idea. Like, what an amazing concept. Um, like, what is more kind of supernatural than, 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 than Greek mythology? Like something that's kind of been right under our nose. Um, you know, just as like Mike Flanagan did in Midnight Mass, like Catholicism and, um, you know, drinking the blood of Christ and, and tying it to vampirism. It's like, oh shit, yeah, of course, they're specters. Or yeah, oh shit, they're monsters. And it's been right under our nose. Like that's fresh. We haven't seen that before. Yeah, we bang on religion all the time in the horror community, but finding a unique way to do it, like it takes some creativity. So cool. Okay. And then also sort of along those lines, like another cool trick that gets pulled in the movie is the use of the color red. Um, Yeah. So it felt very M. Night Shyamalan Sixth Sense-ish. Um, so mm. in the sixth sense, Shyamalan keeps using the the color red to show things that have been touched by the dead or touched by spirits or whatever else. So the whole time we're going through a wounded fawn, I'm watching all these red things like your bracelet and then the red the red door behind you and then the red door leading into the cabin itself. And I'm like, I can't quite pin this thing down. So what is going on with the color red in a wounded fawn? You know, we were just doing press with Travis and <clears throat> someone asked him about the significance of it. I think bringing up the Shyamalan of it all. And he did mention, he was like, you know, I didn't think of red specifically as a signifier of really anything other than just, you know, getting this cabin and letting my department heads do their thing. <laughs> Thinking of this film, not as a horror film, but as a fashion film. Yeah. Um, and I think it just sort of happened naturally and i think if you look at you know original films giallo films or even hammer films um as a whole they had this kind of red orange blood they had a lot of red kind of inherently just because it was horror so let's put a lot of red in here you know that's what it means um that makes it a horror film um i think that was just kind of how just a natural color palette evolved um in the in the making of it all um I don't think it was specifically like, oh, when you see red, that signifies, you know, Bruce's red owl, such and such, even though that's that's what happened when you did see the red owl. You know, this this is just a, a film that embraces red as kind of those older films were like, yes, let's bang it on the nose. This is this is a supernatural film. Let's have these colors. Let's have these shadows. Let's have this hue of red because, you know, that's what a horror film is. And I think I think just in the, in the uh, the 16 millimeter at all and the, and the style of it all, that's just kind of what Travis embraced. Okay, yeah, and it plays so well visually because everything is very like dark, and then you see these bright yeah. of red, and it like catches your attention again. Like, oh, shit's going down. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so then next kind of a question um, from an acting perspective: we've got 
it kind of feels like two different movies here. Uh, the first act one feels very Mark Duplass's creep. Um, yes. We've got we've got this guy that we know we can't trust in the house. And we're just like screaming at, what is the actress's name? I'm so sorry. Oh, Wounded Fawn is Sarah Lind. Yeah. Sarah Lind. Um, we're, we're all screaming at Sarah Lind to get out of this stupid house. Um, and it gets to the point where you turn to kill her. And then we go full like bonkersville on the rest of the film. Like, the, the goddesses start showing up and we've got a furnace that is like turning into a snake thing and trying to eat you. And it just, it takes on this totally different, crazy ass tone. From an acting perspective, did you need to treat those two halves of the film separately or was it kind of continuous for you? Like, how do you approach something with this dramatic of a shift in it? It felt kind of, it felt natural or it felt just kind of appropriate. You know, I think like once you, once you put that, well, I'll start here, you know, you're playing someone, this kind of egotistical sociopath who, who is a walking veneer. You're wearing someone who is a mask. His whole thing is, a, is, 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 is he, he is a killer uh, wearing a mask, the mask of a kind of uh not aristocratic but a you know a regal well-dressed uh know-it-all uh when in fact he is you know essentially Dahmer so playing that was yeah that was indeed like kind of one that was one gear and super fun to play and cathartic to play because it was sort of like making fun of the egotistical toxic know-it-all dudes in my life all the mansplainers which is what you know Bruce essentially is yeah. One who kind of defines himself by how about how vintage and exotic the car is, and how nice and you know kind of um, oh gosh, what's the the type of house? It's just like you know not Art Deco, um, yeah. kind of like whatever Dutch modern whatever style the house is. You know, uh, by the time he's bludgeoned, and you have on Dan Martin's brilliant um, prosthetic uh, over my eye, and your hair is bloody, and your woozy you are it's kind of like wearing shoes um filled with rocks or wearing like a really really heavy helmet it's like it's going to change the way you walk it's going to change your demeanor and so in the context of like the character and the circumstances of it uh there wasn't a whole lot of work i needed to do i mean it was definitely intensive but like the blood and the kind of costume and the makeup of it all kind of brings you there brings you to part two of the film um and and you know i i have the makeup team to kind of thank for that that was so helpful um that eye you know over my left eye and barely being able to see on my left eye so gets you to a place where you feel like you've been bludgeoned because you just kind of feel woozy where you know it's it's hard to exist when you're used to living your life with two eyes to live with one and a half um so yeah no i don't think it was it wasn't too much of a challenge and then at that point it just becomes fun you know you're in full kind of bruce campbell wild swing world at that point Oh, there's the one shot as like after the bludgeoning where you like reach up and you waggle a piece of bone fragment, it seems like. Yeah. And it just yeah. that got me. That got me. Yeah, it's great. It was so fun to see that with an audience, just people just kind of ride in their seats and scream and laugh. <laughs> so okay. So then next question here, moving into act two. I feel like part of the fun of this film is not knowing exactly what's going on from an audience's perspective. Um, not knowing how much of this is your character's delusions because he just got shellacked in the head by the, <laughs> like maybe he's seeing all of this stuff. Maybe he's imagining it or versus maybe this is real. I mean, you brought the statue of these things to your house. Like the yeah. people believed in these Greek goddesses. Uh, slash believe in these Greek goddesses. So like the idea of them coming down and this just being like a straight played horror movie, like that's totally on the table. I know that in ambiguous movies like this, sometimes actors, sometimes directors like revealing like, oh, this is what was really going on. Uh, and sometimes I yeah. like to play it close to the chest. Do you have a headcanon for what was really going on here? Like, was this all really happening or is this a delusion or what? And you do not have to answer this if you don't want to. <laughs> oh, sure. No, I mean, I, I think um, the, at least from my perspective, and I think this is, I think this is Travis's as well. Um, 
the red owl is uh is still is still bruce he's it's a deflection of what he really is he is in full control over the fact that he's a murderer um he is fully guilty he's not being made to do something he doesn't want to do he's not in conflict he just believes that he is it's all part of his kind of um aggrandizing like a narrative um the fantasy uh, uh of his um his his narrative his his perf- performative kind of um uh, uh uh enactment perversion you know what have you um i do think the furies really were uh present and really did kick his ass and yet i couldn't tell you why meredith kind of exists in the end other than perhaps she picked herself up and watched him get terrorized by these things. Um, there's kind of a beautiful sort of allusion to the fact that perhaps all women have, <clears throat> have access to their Irenaeus, and that perhaps that was something that happened in the, the fury of this evening, you know, that Meredith was maybe somehow responsible or sort of a participant in what was actually a supernatural kind of event. But I do, I do think he really did get his ass kicked um, by these things. I don't think it was all in his head. But at the very least, I can say, you know, I, I, or at least my, my opinion is that, you know, there's no, he is in no way a haunted dude. He's just an inherently bad dude who walks around with this kind of like story in his head. You know, he thinks he's so worthy of. Yeah. And that makes it all of his confessions right at the end of the movie, all that more powerful too. like. I'm a murderer. I'm a thief. Like when, when the, the Aranades finally drive him to that, like, yeah. 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 What's more vulnerable and scary for an egotistical, uh, mansplaining know-it-all to actually be exposed to his most vulnerable nerve and place. You know, you look at someone like our, our last president or really anyone who is all ego and all show off. And then you imagine them at their most exposed and you can just, you can, you can imagine a scenario where they would rather kill themselves or flay themselves with a bog knock, like with the claw that Bruce uses on himself, than admit that they're wrong or admit that they're a thief or admit that they're a murderer. You know, like Sarah always points out, and this is so interesting. The Furies never really lay a hand on him. He's doing this all to himself. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is about, you know, just trying to get him to do the worst thing he can possibly imagine, which is admit that he's wrong and admit what he's actually done and kind of take responsibility and to, to be held accountable. Like Weinstein can't do it. He'll deflect and deflect and deflect. All the great abusers have deflected and deflected all the narcissists. That's, that's their, you know, that's what they do. So this is about the raking over the coals of, you know, the ultimate narcissist. Um, and that's what was so kind of fun about playing someone who's like walking around just absolutely losing his shit with no way out yeah making the untouchable realize that oh shit they are touchable like yeah oh yeah wouldn't that be isn't that the most (laughs) wonderful cathartic thing in in our era when that's all we fucking want we just want we want the bad people of the world to take some fucking accountability you know and that was again it's why it was so fun to play it and this is it's just a thrill this being you know a feminist um uh supernatural thriller where i get to play the guy who yes should get his ass kicked it was an honor to be the punching bag (laughs) (laughs) or as the closing shot establishes maybe the slapping bag because yeah that that was my last question for you was holy shit that closing shot's amazing (laughs) i know thank you so much yeah it was so fucking fun to do so fun to do such such a uh, such a thrill like as travis puts it he's like you know you're you're a band when you're making a movie and by the end of the shoot, which you know, that scene was at the end of the shoot, like our last two days of shooting, you know what your band can kinda of do and he knew that I'd be down for it. He knew that we all be down to just like, you know, shoot an eleven minute film cartridge on this entire moment. There's even more on the cutting room floor than it's even in the film. Um, yeah, I was just like super, super down, like more down than anything. You know, this movie's so so wild and weird and wonderful. We were just all of us were just so down to go for it. So it was just a thrill to do, and I'm so glad that you know this is the the year of the credit sequence with with Pearl as well. What a what an honor to be alongside her. Oh, I still haven't gotten to Pearl yet. I watched. X. Oh, you'll see. Loved it. Um, oh, it's so, so good. I promise I didn't spoil anything, but there's just like a really, there's a similar sort of situation with the end credits. It's just like kind of a joy. Nice. 
<laughs> with that final scene where you're just beating the crap out of yourself with that uh with that claw I, I was kind of going back and forth the whole movie, like I was saying about like, okay, is this all in his head? Is there somebody driving him to do this? As I'm mm-hmm. watching you beat yourself up with that claw, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, he'd be dead by now. And then a minute later, okay, he's definitely going to be dead by now. <laughs> Another minute later, like he's got to be dead by now. Um, I, I couldn't tell if that was lending credence to like, okay, somebody else is moving his arms around, but I like the way you're describing it of, no, he's doing this to himself. It's like finally broken, finally demasculated, and finally like shown for what he is, and he's just destroyed yeah. over it. Love that. Okay. Those are all the questions I had. Is there anything else you want to talk about with Scare Me or Werewolves or uh, Wounded Fawn? I mean, all of your questions were so thoughtful, refreshing, and thorough. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it or asked it any any better myself man i mean you you really have clearly like you know you're passionate about this subject matter which is such a <laughs> such a thrill and such a privilege um you you've said it all man you've covered it i don't think i, I could have could have done any better man sweet well thank you for saying that i guess closing 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 question um if our listeners are trying to connect with you trying to find you what are your socials do you have any other big projects coming out that you want to pitch real quick anything like that uh i'm just pretty much josh rubin everywhere um and uh i have a website joshesmindhouse.com all one word uh where i put all my latest kind of trailers and there's merch and um uh whatever anything you possibly possibly need or want uh, or ask for um and then yeah you know it's uh I'm not quite clear what the next thing is. There's a couple things that are neck and neck. There's there's like kind of a really fun, um, creepy sci-fi movie. I'm really excited to to do that. Sort of could be a a means to a John Carpenter esque kind of uh, romp, um, and uh, just an awesome script. And there's some really killer actors attached to it. Um, but uh, you know, we haven't found financing yet. Nothing sort of official official but that's that's super exciting um and uh michael kennedy who wrote freaky uh he and i actually are collaborating on something that um i'm so excited about uh that like a true horror comedy that uh would be fun as hell to do it's just a matter of you know figuring out the right the right partner nice well best of luck with whichever one of those two ends up landing uh, or Thank option so three that comes out the shadows at the last minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, for everybody listening, that just about wraps us up for this episode. Uh, again, I'm William Sterling. This has been Killer Mediums. Please don't forget to like or subscribe or spend a night in the cabin of your choice uh, telling ghost stories to each other. We'll uh, We'll talk to you next time. tied bells to everybody in the morgue so if they heard a ting they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go